0: section 7 of the concept of nature by alfred north whitehead this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by leon meyer section 7 the ensuing lecture is concerned with the theory of objects Objects are elements in nature which do not pass. The awareness of an object as some factor not sharing in the passage of nature is what I call recognition. It is impossible to recognize an event because an event is essentially distinct from every other event. Recognition is an awareness of sameness. But to call recognition an awareness of sameness implies an intellectual act of comparison. Accompanied with judgment. I use recognition for the non intellectual relation of sense awareness which connects the mind with a factor of nature without passage. On the intellectual side of the mind's experience there are comparisons of things recognized and consequent judgments of sameness or diversity. Probably sense recognition would be a better term for what I mean by recognition. I have chosen the simpler term because I think that I shall be able to avoid the use of recognition in any other meaning than that of sense-recognition. I am quite willing to believe that recognition, in my sense of the term, is merely an ideal limit, and that there is, in fact, no recognition without intellectual accompaniments of comparison and judgment but recognition is that relation of the mind to nature which provides the material for the intellectual activity. An object is an ingredient in the character of some event. In fact, the character of an event is nothing but the objects which are ingredient in it and the ways in which those objects make their ingression into the event. Thus the theory of objects is the theory of the comparison of events. Events are only comparable because they body forth permanences. We are comparing objects and events whenever we can say, there it is again. Objects are the elements in nature which can be again. Sometimes permanences can be proved to exist which evade recognition in the sense in which I am using that term. The permanences which evade recognition appear to us as abstract properties either of events or of objects. All the same, they are there for recognition, although undiscriminated in our sense-awareness. The demarcation of events, the splitting of nature up into parts, is effected by the objects which we recognize as their ingredients. The discrimination of nature is the recognition of objects amid passing events. It is a compound of the awareness of the passage of nature, of the consequent partition of nature, and of the definition of certain parts of nature by the modes of the ingression of objects into them. You may have noticed that I am using the term ingression to denote the general relation of objects to events. The ingression of an object into an event is the way the character of the event shapes itself in virtue of being of the object. Namely, the event is what it is because the object is what it is, and when I am thinking of this modification of the event by the object, I call the relation between the two the ingression of the object into the event. It is equally true to say that objects are what they are because events are what they are. Nature is such that there can be no events and no objects without the ingression of objects into events although there are events such that the ingredient objects evade our recognition. These are the events in empty space. Such events are only analyzed for us by the intellectual probing of science. Ingression is a relation which has various modes. There are obviously very various kinds of objects, and no one kind of object can have the same sort of relations to events as objects of another kind can have we shall have to analyze out some of the different modes of ingression which different kinds of objects have into events. But even if we stick to one and the same kind of objects, an object of that kind has different modes of ingression into different events. Science and philosophy have been apt to entangle themselves in a simple-minded theory that an object is at one place at any definite time and is in no sense anywhere else. This is, in fact, the attitude of common-sense thought, though it is not the attitude of language which is naively expressing the facts of experience. Every other sentence in a work of literature which is endeavoring truly to interpret the facts of experience expresses difference in surrounding events due to the presence of some object. An object is ingredient throughout its neighborhood, and its neighborhood is indefinite. Also, the modification of events by ingression is susceptible of quantitative differences. Finally, therefore, we are driven to admit that each object is in some sense ingredient throughout nature, though its ingression may be quantitatively irrelevant in the expression of our individual experiences. This admission is not new either in philosophy or science, it is obviously a necessary axiom for those philosophers who insist that reality is a system. In these lectures we are keeping off the profound and vexed question as to what we mean by reality. I am maintaining the humbler thesis that nature is a system. But I suppose that in this case the less follows from the greater. And that I may claim the support of these philosophers. The same doctrine is essentially interwoven in all modern physical speculation. As long ago as 1847, Faraday, in a paper in the Philosophical Magazine, remarked that his theory of tubes of force implies that, in a sense, an electric charge is everywhere. The modification of the electromagnetic field at every point of space, at each instant, owing to the past history of each electron, is another way of stating the same fact. We can, however, illustrate the doctrine by the more familiar facts of life, without recourse to the abstruse speculations of theoretical physics. The waves as they roll on the Cornish coast tell of a gale in mid-Atlantic, and our dinner witnesses to the ingression of the cook into the dining room it is evident that the ingression of objects into events includes the theory of causation. I prefer to neglect this aspect of ingression, because causation raises the memory of discussions based upon theories of nature which are alien to my own. Also, I think that some new light may be thrown on the subject by viewing it in this fresh aspect. The examples which I have given of the ingression of objects into events remind us that ingression takes a peculiar form in the case of some events. In a sense, it is a more concentrated form. For example, the electron has a certain position in space and a certain shape. Perhaps it is an extremely small sphere and a certain test-tube. The storm is a gale situated in mid-Atlantic with a certain latitude and longitude and the cook is in the kitchen. I will call this special form of ingression the relation of situation. Also, by a double use of the word situation, I will call the event in which an object is situated the situation of the object. Thus, a situation is an event which is a relatum in the relation of situation. Now our first impression is that at last we have come to the simple plain fact of where the object really is, and that the vaguer relation which I call ingression should not be muddled up with a relation of situation, as if including it as a particular case. It seems so obvious that any object is in such and such a position, and that it is influencing other events in a totally different sense. Namely, in a sense an object is the character of the event which is its situation, but it only influences the character of other events. Accordingly the relations of situation and influencing are not generally the same sort of relation and should not be subsumed under the same term ingression. I believe that this notion is a mistake and that it is impossible to draw a clear distinction between the two relations for example where was your toothache you went to a dentist and pointed out the tooth to him he pronounced it perfectly sound and cured you by stopping another tooth which tooth was the situation of the toothache again a man has an arm amputated and experiences sensations in the hand which he has lost The situation of the imaginary hand is in fact merely thin air. You look into a mirror and see a fire. The flames that you see are situated behind the mirror. Again at night you watch the sky. If some of the stars had vanished from existence hours ago, you would not be any the wiser. Even the situations of the planets differ from those which science would assign to them. Anyhow, you were tempted to exclaim... The cook is in the kitchen. If you mean her mind, I will not agree with you on the point, for I am only talking of nature. Let us think only of her bodily presence. What do you mean by this notion? We confine ourselves to typical manifestations of it. You can see her, touch her, and hear her. But the examples which I have given show you that the notions of situations of what you see, what you touch, what you hear are not so sharply separated out as to defy further questioning. You cannot cling to the idea that we have two sets of experiences of nature, one of primary qualities which belong to the objects perceived, and one of secondary qualities which are the products of our mental excitements. All we know of nature is in the same boat, to sink or swim together. The constructions of science are merely expositions of the characters of things perceived. Accordingly to affirm that the cook is a certain dance of molecules and electrons is merely to affirm that the things about her which are perceivable have certain characters. The situations of the perceived manifestations of her bodily presence have only a very general relation to the situations of the molecules to be determined by discussion of the circumstances of perception. In discussing the relations of situation in particular and of ingression in general, the first requisite is to note that objects are of radically different types. For each type, situation, and ingression, have their own special meanings which are different from their meanings for other types, though connections can be pointed out. It is necessary, therefore, in discussing them to determine what types of objects are under consideration. There are, I think, an indefinite number of types of objects. Happily, we need not think of them all. The idea of situation has its peculiar importance in reference to three types of objects, which I call sense objects, perceptual objects, and scientific objects. The suitability of these names for the three types is of minor importance, so long as I can succeed in explaining what I mean by them. These three types form an ascending hierarchy, of which each member presupposes the type below. The base of the hierarchy is formed by the sense objects. These objects do not presuppose any other type of objects. A sense object is a factor of nature posited by sense awareness which, one, in that it is an object, does not share in the passage of nature, and two, is not a relation between other factors of nature. It will of course be a relative in relations which also implicate other factors of nature, but it is always a relative and never the relation itself. Examples of sense-objects are a particular sort of color, say Cambridge blue, or a particular sort of sound, or a particular sort of smell, or a particular sort of feeling. I am not talking of a particular patch of blue as seen during a particular second of time at a definite date. Such a patch is an event where Cambridge Blue is situated. Similarly, I am not talking of any particular concert room as filled with the note. I mean the note itself, and not the patch of volume filled by the sound for a tenth of a second. It is natural for us to think of the note in itself, but in the case of color we are apt to think of it merely as a property of the patch. No one thinks of the note as a property of the concert room. We see the blue and we hear the note. Both the blue and the note are immediately posited by the discrimination of sense-awareness which relates the mind to nature. The blue is posited as a nature related to other factors in nature. In particular it is posited as in the relation of being situated in the event which is its situation. The difficulties which cluster around the relation of situation arise from the obstinate refusal of philosophers to take seriously the ultimate fact of multiple relations. By a multiple relation I mean a relation which in any concrete instance of its occurrence necessarily involves more than two relata. For example, when John likes Tom, there are only two relata, John and Thomas. But when John gives that book to Thomas, there are three relata, John, that book, and Thomas. Some schools of philosophy, under the influence of the Aristotelian logic in the Aristotelian philosophy, endeavor to get on without admitting any relations at all except that of substance and attribute. Namely, all apparent relations are to be resolvable into the concurrent existence of substances, with contrasted attributes. It is fairly obvious that the Leibnizian monadology is the necessary outcome of any such philosophy. If you dislike pluralism, there will only be one monad. Other schools of philosophy admit relations, but obstinately refuse to contemplate relations, with more than two relata. I do not think that this limitation is based on any set purpose or theory. It merely arises from the fact that more complicated relations are a bother to people without adequate mathematical training, when they are admitted into the reasoning. I must repeat that we have nothing to do in these lectures with the ultimate character of reality. It is quite possible that in the true philosophy of reality there are only individual substances with attributes or that there are only relations with pairs of relata. I do not believe that such is the case, but I am not concerned to argue about it now. Our theme is nature. So long as we confine ourselves to the factors posited in a sense-awareness of nature, it seems to me that there certainly are instances of multiple relations between these factors, and that the relation of situation for sense-objects is one example of such multiple relations. Consider a blue coat, a flannel coat of cambridge blue belonging to some athlete. The coat itself is a perceptual object and its situation is not what I'm talking about. We are talking of someone's definite sense awareness of cambridge blue as situated in some event of nature. He may be looking at the coat directly. He then sees cambridge blue as situated practically in the same event as the coat at that instant. It is true that the blue which he sees is due to light which left the coat some inconceivably small fraction of a second before. This difference would be important if you were looking at a star whose color was Cambridge Blue. The star might have ceased to exist days ago, or even years ago. The situation of the blue will not then be very intimately connected with the situation, in another sense of situation, of any perceptual object. This disconnection of the situation of the blue and the situation of some associated perceptual object does not require a star for its exemplification. Any looking glass will suffice. Look at the coat through a looking glass, then blue is seen as situated behind the mirror. The event which is its situation depends on the position of the observer. The sense awareness of the blue as situated in a certain event which I called the situation is thus exhibited as a sense awareness of a relation between the blue, the percipient event of the observer, the situation, and intervening events. All nature is in fact required, though only certain intervening events require their characters to be of certain definite sorts. The ingression of blue into the events of nature is thus exhibited as systematically correlated. The awareness of the observer depends on the position of the precipient event in this systematic correlation. I will use the term ingression into nature for this systematic correlation of the blue with nature. Thus the ingression of blue into any definite event is a part statement of the fact of the ingression of blue into nature. In respect to the ingression of blue into nature, Events may be roughly put into four classes which overlap and are not very clearly separated. These classes are 1. The Percipient Events, 2. The Situations, 3. The Active Conditioning Events, 4. The Passive Conditioning Events. To understand this classification of events in the general fact of the ingression of blue into nature, Let us confine attention to one situation for one percipient event, and to the consequent roles of the conditioning events, for the ingression is thus limited. The percipient event is the relevant bodily state of the observer. The situation is where he sees the blue, say, behind the mirror. The active conditioning events are the events whose characters are particularly relevant for the event, which is the situation to be the situation for that percipient event, namely the coat, the mirror, and the state of the room as to light and atmosphere. The passive conditioning events are the events of the rest of nature. In general, the situation is an active conditioning event, namely the coat itself, when there is no mirror or other contrivance to produce abnormal effects. But the example of the mirror shows us that the situation may be one of those passive conditioning events. We are then apt to say that our senses have been cheated, because we demand as a right that the situation should be an active condition in the ingression. This demand is not so baseless as it may seem when presented as I have put it. All we know of the characters of the events of nature is based on the analysis of the relations of situations to percipient events. If situations were not in general active conditions, this analysis would tell us nothing. Nature would be an unfathomable enigma to us, and there could be no science. Accordingly, the incipient discontent when a situation is found to be a passive condition is in a sense justifiable, because if that sort of thing went on too often, the role of the intellect would be ended. Furthermore, the mirror is itself the situation of other sense-objects, either for the same observer with the same percipient event, or for other observers with other percipient events. Thus the fact that an event is a situation in the ingression of one set of sense-objects into nature, is presumptive evidence that that event is an active condition in the ingression of other sense-objects into nature which may have other situations. This is a fundamental principle of science which it is derived from common sense. I now turn to perceptual objects. When we look at the coat we do not in general say, there is a patch of Cambridge blue. What naturally occurs to us is, there is a coat. Also the judgment that what we have seen is a garment of a man's attire is a detail what we perceive is an object other than a mere sense object. It is not a mere patch of color, but something more, and it is that something more which we judge to be a coat. I will use the word coat as the name for that crude object which is more than a patch of color, without any allusion to the judgments as to its usefulness as an article of attire either in the past or the future. The coat which is perceived, in this sense of the word coat, is what I call a perceptual object. We have to investigate the general nature of these perceptual objects. It is a law of nature that, in general, the situation of a sense object is not only the situation of that sense object for one definite percipient event, but is the situation of a variety of sense objects for a variety of percipient events. For example, for any one percipient event, the situation of a sense-object of sight is apt also to be the situations of sense-objects of sight, of touch, of smell, and of sound. Furthermore, this concurrence in the situations of sense-objects has led to the body, i.e., the percipient event, so adapting itself that the perception of one sense-object in a certain situation leads to a subconscious sense-awareness of other sense-objects in the same situation. This interplay is especially the case between touch and sight. There is a certain correlation between the ingressions of sense-objects of touch and sense-objects of sight into nature, and in a slighter degree between the ingressions of other pairs of sense-objects. I call this sort of correlation the conveyance of one sense-object by another. When you see the blue flannel coat, you subconsciously feel yourself wearing it, or otherwise touching it. If you are a smoker, you may also subconsciously be aware of the faint aroma of tobacco. The peculiar fact, posited by this sense-awareness of the concurrence of subconscious sense-objects, along with one or more dominating sense-objects in the same situation, is the sense-awareness of the perceptual object. The perceptual object is not primarily the issue of a judgment. It is a factor of nature directly posited in sense-awareness. The element of judgment comes in when we proceed to classify the particular perceptual object. For example, we say, that is flannel, and we think of the properties of flannel and the uses of athletes' coats. But that all takes place after we have got hold of the perceptual object. Anticipatory judgments affect the perceptual object perceived by focusing and directing attention. The perceptual object is the outcome of the habit of experience. Anything which conflicts with this habit hinders the sense-awareness of such an object. A sense-object is not the product of the association of intellectual ideas, it is the product of the association of sense-objects in the same situation. This outcome is not intellectual, it is an object of peculiar type with its own particular ingression into nature there are two kinds of perceptual objects namely delusive perceptual objects and physical objects the situation of a delusive perceptual object is a passive condition in the ingression of that object into nature also the event which is the situation will have the relation of situation to the object only for one particular percipient event for example an observer sees the image of the blue coat in a mirror it is a blue coat that he sees, and not a mere patch of color. This shows that the active conditions for the conveyance of a group of subconscious sense objects by a dominating sense object are to be found in the precipient event. Namely, we are to look for them in the investigations of medical psychologists. The ingression into nature of the delusive sense object is conditioned by the adaptation of bodily events to the more normal occurrence, which is the ingression of the physical object. A perceptual object is a physical object when 1. Its object is an active conditioning event for the ingression of any of its component sense objects, and 2. The same event can be the situation of the perceptual object for an indefinite number of possible percipient events. Physical objects are the ordinary events which we perceive when our senses are not cheated, such as chairs, tables, and trees. In a way, physical objects have more insistent perceptive power than sense objects. Attention to the fact of their occurrence in nature is the first condition for the survival of complex living organisms. The result of this high perceptive power of physical objects is the scholastic philosophy of nature, which looks on the sense objects as mere attributes of the physical objects. This scholastic point of view is directly contradicted by the wealth of sense objects which enter into our experience as situated in events without any connection with physical objects, for example stray smells, sounds, colors, and more subtle nameless senseless objects. There is no perception of physical objects without perception of sense objects, but the converse does not hold. Namely, there is abundant perception of sense-objects unaccompanied by any perception of physical objects. This lack of reciprocity in the relations between sense-objects and physical objects is fatal to the scholastic natural philosophy. There is a great difference in the roles of the situations of sense-objects and physical objects. The situations of a physical object are conditioned by uniqueness and continuity. The uniqueness is an ideal limit to which we approximate as we proceed in thought along an abstract set of durations, considering smaller and smaller durations in the approach to the ideal limit of the moment of time. In other words, when the duration is small enough the situation of the physical object within that duration is practically unique. The identification of the same physical object as being situated in distinct events and distinct durations is effected by the condition of continuity. This condition of continuity is the condition that a continuity passage of events, each event being a situation of the object in its corresponding duration, can be found from the earlier to the later of the two given events. So far as the two events are practically adjacent in one species present, this continuity of passage may be directly perceived, otherwise it is a matter of judgment and inference. The situations of a sense-object are not conditioned by any such conditions, either of uniqueness or of continuity. In any durations, however small, a sense-object may have any number of situations separated from each other thus two situations of a sense-object either in the same duration or in different durations are not necessarily connected by any continuous passage of events which are also situations of that sense-object the characters of the conditioning events involved in the ingression of a sense-object into nature can be largely expressed in terms of the physical objects which are situated in those events. In one respect this is also a tautology, for the physical object is nothing else than the habitual concurrence of a certain set of sense objects in one situation. Accordingly, when we know all about the physical object, we thereby know its component sense objects. But a physical object is a condition for the occurrence of sense objects, other than those which are its components. For example, the atmosphere causes the events which are its situations to be active conditioning events in the transmission of sound. A mirror which is itself a physical object is an active condition for the situation of a patch of color behind it, due to the reflection of light in it. Thus the origin of scientific knowledge is the endeavor to express, in terms of physical objects. The various roles of events as active conditions in the ingression of sense-objects into nature. It is in the progress of this investigation that scientific objects emerge. They embody those aspects of the character of the situations of the physical objects, which are most permanent and are expressible without reference to a multiple relation, including a percipient event. Their relations to each other are also characterized by a certain simplicity and uniformity. Finally, the characters of the observed physical objects and sense objects can be expressed in terms of these scientific objects. In fact, the whole point of the search for scientific objects is the endeavor to obtain this simple expression of the characters of events. These scientific objects are not themselves merely formulae for calculation, because formulae must refer to things in nature, and the scientific objects are the things in nature, to which the formulae refer. A scientific object, such as a definite electron, is a systematic correlation of the characters of all events throughout all nature. It is an aspect of the systematic character of nature. The electron is not merely where its charge is, the charge is the quantitative character of certain events due to the ingression of the electron into nature the electron is its whole field of force. Namely, the electron is the systematic way in which all events are modified as the expression of its ingression. The situation of an electron in any small duration may be defined as that event which has the quantitative character which is the charge of the electron. We may, if we please, term the mere charge the electron but then another name is required for the scientific object which is the full entity which concerns science, and which I have called the electron. According to this conception of scientific objects, the rival theories of action at a distance and action by transmission through a medium are both incomplete expressions of the true process of nature. The stream of events which form the continuous series of situations of the electron, is entirely self-determined both as regards having the intrinsic character of being the series of situations of that electron and as regards the time systems with which its various members are co in the flux of their positions and the corresponding durations this is the foundation of the denial of action at a distance namely the progress of the stream of situations of a scientific object can be determined by an analysis of the stream itself. On the other hand, the ingression of every electron into nature modifies to some extent the character of every event. Thus the character of the stream of events which we are considering bears marks of the existence of every other electron throughout the universe. If we like to think of the electrons as being merely what I call their charges, then the charges act at a distance but this action consists in the modification of the situation of the other electron under consideration. This conception of a charge acting at a distance is a wholly artificial one. The conception which most fully expresses the character of nature is that of each event as modified by the ingression of each electron into nature. The ether is the expression of this systematic modification of events throughout space and throughout time. The best expression of the character this modification is for physicists to find out. My theory has nothing to do with that and is ready to accept any outcome of physical research. The connection of objects with space requires elucidation. Objects are situated in events. The relation of situation is a different relation for each type of object and in the case of sense-objects it cannot be expressed as a two-termed relation. It would perhaps be better to use a different word for these different types of the relation of situation. It has not, however, been necessary to do so for our purposes in these lectures. It must be understood, however, that when situation is spoken of, some one definite type is under discussion, and it may happen that the argument may not apply to situation of another type. In all cases, however, I use situation to express a relation between objects and events, and not between objects and abstractive elements. There is a derivative relation between objects and spatial elements, which I call the relation of location. And when this relation holds, I say that the object is located in the abstractive element. In this sense, an object may be located in a moment of time, in a volume of space, an area, a line, or a point. There will be a peculiar type of location corresponding to each type of situation. And location is in each case derivative from the corresponding relation of situation, in a way which I will proceed to explain. Also, location in the timeless space of some time system is a relation derivative from location and instantaneous spaces of the same time system. Accordingly, location in an instantaneous space is the primary idea which we have to explain. Great confusion has been occasioned in natural philosophy by the neglect to distinguish between the different types of objects the different types of situation, the different types of location, and the difference between location and situation. It is impossible to reason accurately in the vague concerning objects and their positions without keeping these distinctions in view. An object is located in an abstractive element when an abstractive set belonging to that element can be found such that each event belonging to that set is a situation of the object. It will be remembered that an abstractive element is a certain group of abstractive sets, and that each abstractive set is a set of events. This definition defines the location of an element in any type of abstractive element. In this sense, we can talk of the existence of an object at an instant, meaning thereby its location in some definite moment. It may also be located in some spatial element of the instantaneous space of that moment. A quantity can be said to be located in an abstractive element when an abstractive set belonging to the element can be found such that the quantitative expressions of the corresponding characters of its events converge to the measure of the given quantity as a limit when we pass along the abstractive set toward its converging end. By these definitions, location in elements of instantaneous spaces is defined. These elements occupy corresponding elements of timeless spaces. An object located in an element of an instantaneous space will also be said to be located at that moment in the timeless element of the timeless space which is occupied by that instantaneous element. It is not every object which can be located in a moment. An object which can be located in every moment of some duration will be called a uniform object throughout that duration. Ordinary physical objects appear to us to be uniform objects, and we habitually assume that scientific objects, such as electrons, are uniform. But some sense objects certainly are not uniform. A tune is an example of a non-uniform object. We have perceived it as a whole in a certain duration, but the tune as a tune is not at any moment of that duration, though one of the individual notes may be located there. It is possible, therefore, that for the existence of certain sorts of objects, e.g. electrons, minimum quanta of time are requisite. Some such postulate is apparently indicated by the modern quantum theory, and it is perfectly consistent with the doctrine of objects maintained in these lectures. Also, the instance of the distinction between the electron as the mere quantitative electric charge of its situation and the electron is standing for the ingression of an object throughout nature, illustrates the indefinite number of types of objects which exist in nature. We can intellectually distinguish even subtler and subtler types of objects. Here I reckon subtlety as meaning seclusion from the immediate apprehension of sense awareness. Evolution in the complexity of life means an increase in the types of objects directly sensed. Delicacy of sense apprehension means perception of objects as distinct entities which are mere subtle ideas to cruder sensibilities. The phrasing of music is a mere abstract subtlety to the unmusical. It is a direct sense apprehension to the initiated. For example, if we could imagine some lowly type of organic being thinking and aware of our thoughts, It would wonder at the abstract subtleties in which we indulge as we think of stones and bricks and drops of water and plants. It only knows of vague, undifferentiated feelings in nature. It would consider us as given over to the play of excessively abstract intellects. But then if it could think, it would anticipate, and if it anticipated, it would soon perceive for itself. In these lectures we have been scrutinizing the foundations of natural philosophy we are stopping at the very point where a boundless ocean of inquiries opens out for our questioning. I agree that the view of nature which I have maintained in these lectures is not a simple one. Nature appears as a complex system whose factors are dimly discerned by us. But, as I ask you, is not this the very truth? Should we not distrust the jaunty assurance with which every age prides itself, that it has at last hit upon the ultimate concepts in which all that happens can be formulated. The aim of science is to seek the simplest explanation of complex facts. We are apt to fall into the error of thinking that the facts are simple because simplicity is the goal of our quest. The guiding motto in the life of every natural philosopher should be Seek simplicity and distrust it. End of section 7.